Hello, I'm Adam Ferner. And I'm Darren Chetty. And welcome to Do You Even Vegan? Darren and I have been away for a while, but we're back in uh, style. The next three episodes are recordings from live events that took place at the start of December, co-organised with The Philosopher, a Newcastle-based philosophy magazine edited by Anthony Morgan. We were lucky enough to talk to three big-name vegan theorists, Eva Meyer, Gary Francione and Syl Coe. In this episode, which was recorded and live-streamed over breakfast, you'll hear us chatting to Eva with introductions by Anthony. We're currently recording our reflections on these interviews, so keep your eyes or ears out for some post-chat analysis. We hope you enjoy listening. So to introduce our first guest of the day for Darren and Adam, um, Ava Meyer is a philosopher, um, poet, writer based in Holland. She is a prolific writer, writing both novels, novellas and um, works of philosophy. Philosophically, she's written in the last year or two, Animal Languages and When Animals Speak. She's currently a postdoctoral researcher at Wageningen University, and she will shortly be starting a second postdoctoral position at the University of Amsterdam, investigating the politics of not eating animals. She released a new novel this year, which is yet to be translated into English, but when it is, it will probably be called The New River. And it, she described it as a um, detective story with hints of magical realism. So um, um, Ava is a very diverse and exciting young thinker. So I'm really delighted that she's able to join for this event. So I think I've said everything I need to. Um, Darren, Adam and Ava will probably chat for 30, 35 minutes. Please send any questions in you have to the um, Q&A function at the bottom of your screens. And um, by all means, send anything to the chat function you want. Say hello, say where you are, say how your year's been, whatever it may be. Anyway, I think that's probably everything I need to say. So I'll invite Darren, Adam and Ava to come onto the screen and we can get cracking. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Thanks, Anthony. So just very quickly uh, to say a little bit more about the Do You Even Vegan podcast. Uh, we started in 2020 and it's a podcast exploring veganism personally, politically and playfully. We've tended to look at issues and debates within veganism because certainly in sort of the popular press, the vegans are just this sort of homogenous group. Uh, and I've often uh, wanted to have sort of more uh, detailed conversations about veganism. But we're also interested in looking at how veganism relates to other social justice movements, if indeed we think of veganism as a social justice movement. Well, we often talk whilst we're eating. Uh, we're breaking with that tradition today, I think, although I do have uh, a large pot of coffee here because and eight o'clock yeah. is very early time to start. And uh, But we'll see how we go. Um, Thank you to the philosopher for inviting us to do this. Thank you to Ava for, for agreeing to, to have this conversation. And I'm going to hand over to Adam, who I think is going to sort of kick us off with the questions. Yeah. So again, just to echo Darren's thanks. And also to say, I have decided not to eat any food because I'm being very professional and I don't want to get any in my beard. So I think one of the things that we thought we could do was start by doing a kind of like rough summary, just so that members of the audience who aren't familiar with Ava's work um, can kind of get a handle on stuff. So uh, I'm going to talk a little bit and 
I'm sorry, Ava, if this massively distorts your position, but um, I, this is me trying to present a complex picture of thought in, in a short amount of time. And, and I'm basing this on uh, your book, Animal Languages, which I have here, which itself is based on, now you'll remind me what the title of your, of the uh, more academic text is. When Animals Speak. When animals speak, okay. So in general, I think the thesis in, in these books is that humans massively underappreciate the extent to which non-human animals are engaged in intelligent and meaningful communication. And if we examine the scientific studies seriously, I think it's your contention that uh, we can see that animals can be said to talk and that they can talk to us. And acknowledging this and the potential for significant relationships with animals will lead us to acknowledge their personhood and um, you know the knock-on effect for uh, in terms of our diet is since we don't eat persons we shouldn't eat animals um, or position them as products and so this kind of leads into the first question which uh, Dan and I have for you so, which is that um, obviously a lot in these works trades on your interpretation of the scientific studies and in animal languages um, you present just a huge array of incredibly fascinating case studies um, and cases of non-human animal communication, which I just like, I've, I've really loved reading. And so there's the there's the prairie dogs, the prairie dogs meet, meeting each other with a French kiss is how you describe it. Uh, humans say hello because they're happy to see one another and or to reinforce their bond. Gannets, uh, monogamous seabirds do the same. Whenever their partner returns, they perform an extensive greeting ritual, rubbing their heads and necks over each other. The male often brings gifts for the female, such as flowers to decorate the ne nest or to use as a necklace. So I think where it would be good to start off is talking about anthropomorphism. So obviously in these descriptions, you're presenting a picture of animals, non-human animals with human characteristics. So French kissing or gift giving. And we were wondering whether you, whether you think that in doing this, you run the risk of flattening non-human animal interactions by likening them to human interactions. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Also, thank you for the for the introduction. I think there's one thing that I should clarify uh, before we uh, get started, before I turn to your question. I don't think that language or uh, meaningful communication as understood by humans uh, is a necessary prerequisite for um, recognizing other animals as persons. Uh, I'm not sure if persons is a helpful category for our conversation today, but I think that um, the, I completely underscribe the um, animal rights argument uh, that sees sentience as um, uh, um, necessary and sufficient for uh, taking other animals into account. So it's not, um, I don't want to argue that because animals are a specific kind of being or have a specific type of capacity, we should recognize them and not as, as members of our community and not even. The point is a little bit different. Um, the thing is, so for, for a very long time in philosophy and also kind of public discourse, um, non-human animals uh, were seen as, as objects of thought. And I mean, in law, they're of course, literally understood as, uh, as objects at the moment. 
And I think that what we are finding out now, because there's a lot of new research being done, including the language research, but also, for example, research on animal cultures and all of these things, I think we're beginning to get an understanding of how non-human animals have a perspective on their own lives and also on their relationships uh, with humans. And I think there are compelling political and moral reasons for taking seriously that perspective. And we will get to that later uh, on in the questions. Um, but that asks for a different type of understanding of our relations with these animals because we share a world with them and we are not the only beings who have an idea about the future of these relationships so um, uh, we're going to have to engage with other animals in conversation uh, but we will get to that so this is just to, to kind of clarify that because I don't want uh, I'm, I'm not a capacity-based person in that sense um, so what about anthropomorphism? Um, the first answer would be that uh, denying non-human animals certain capacities is a ideological construction uh, that has been very popular in animal research. The Dutch uh, primatologist Frans de Waal calls this anthropodenial. So for a very long time, it was thought that only humans were uh, capable of certain emotions and uh, forms of cognition and language and culture, and other animals were not. And that was kind of the neutral position to study whether they would perhaps be capable of that and also to model that on human capacities. Um, but in fact, um, as for example, Vinciana Desprez, uh, a, a Flemish or um, a Belgian uh, psychologist shows, in animal research, there were also ideological preconceptions, uh, similar to how this worked between human groups. Um, so the question of anthropomorphism cannot be seen as apart from our uh, historical and current engagement uh, with other animals. Um, but as a philosopher, I'm interested in something else. So I see concepts as a beginning point for understanding what goes on in certain types of relationships. Uh, the philosopher uh, Wittgenstein saw uh, language as a kind of toolbox, perhaps, for uh, understanding the world. And this um, understanding of language that we maybe also will get to later is very fruitful, I think, for um, understanding engagements with other animals. And the idea with using concepts such as love or language in relation to other animals is not to see how our human interpretation of that concept fits the other animal or to kind of drag them in, but more to see them as a starting point. So for example, I think language is a really good example because we've been denying other animals language. Uh, humans saw language simply as human language. And uh, in studying other animals, the idea was like, how good are they in learning human language? And if they were very good at it, they had some kind of language. If they were not good at it, then they're basically mute. They're not saying anything. Uh, and that's kind of taking language as a fixed human concept and then seeing how the other animals fit in. But if you turn it around and uh, see language as a sort of overarching thing that we use to uh, interact with others and build worlds with 
others of different uh, species perhaps and uh, sort of investigate how this works for the other animals, then language suddenly becomes uh, a question, something that we can ask from the other animals. So um, they're basically not, probably not writing novels in a, in a way that we write novels, but uh, there are many similarities. For example, names. Uh, humans always think that naming is a very human thing, but dolphins name their children and they keep their name throughout their lives. It's this little clicking sound. Parrots use names for their, uh, for their children. Uh, bats use names. Bats like to gossip. So when they argue and the bat that they are arguing with leaves, you can hear them speaking about that bat. And um, sort of, yeah, investigating these things can give us a better grasp on uh, what goes on in non-human animal minds and perhaps also allow for a certain kind of humility because uh, they can teach us stuff about these things as well. So as humans, we're limited, you know, we have a, a limited sensory apparatus, we have a limited uh, notion of concepts, but this doesn't mean that we cannot engage with others who are other from us. Sorry, a bit of a long answer. <laughs> no, that was that was really interesting. Darren, I don't know if you, I don't want to hog, hog the questions, as it were. Very good, very good. Um, well, I, I guess uh, hearing that, I'm, I'm wondering, I guess two things go in my, my mind. One is the, you know, you made the joke about animals don't write novels. Um, but there, there does seem perhaps this, this important difference in how language is being used between humans and non-human animals in terms of, yeah, in terms of uh, not just writing, but storytelling, not simply immediate communication, but a kind of, I guess, what's often called culture. And the other thing, I'm, I'm, excuse me, because I'm thinking in real time, is that when I hear that the, the, what you've said there, it does sound a little bit like the way anthropology began in sort of Western Europeans going out into other cultures and going, hey, some of what they do is quite like us. So even though on the one hand, it, it, it's got this sort of sense of being quite emancipatory, there's still this sense of who is, who is the, the looker that, as far as I know, but the animals aren't taking the same interest in humans so that there's a sort of uh, a cross-cultural, a cross-species engagement so much as it's humans looking out at animals. And I just wonder how, to what extent that brings us back to this idea of, you know, a sort of human superiority at, at, at the centre of this, uh, albeit a, a more benign one than, than, than we're often seeing. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, thank you. I'm seriously wondering. I think that animals are looking much more at us than we are looking at them. Basically, for a lot of animals, because their life depends on it. You know, if you move around in cities and uh, you look at the pigeons and the mice and the, the city birds and all of them and the rats, and they're basically looking at humans in order not to be killed. Um, uh, there are also a lot of uh, uh, non-human animals uh, companion animals, farmed animals, basically all domesticated animals who co-evolved with humans. So <clears throat> their uh, genetic makeup is formed by humans, but humans' genetic makeup is similarly formed by them. For example, in relations between humans and dogs, there's a lot of research in how 
we do not only have this sort of co-culture, so, um, but really physical, physically humans have been formed by living with dogs for, um, for a very long time. So considering the colonial question, um, I guess when you only read uh, Animal Languages, which is basically a, a popular philosophical book that is based on a larger uh, uh, political argument, uh, I think the, the function of animal languages is to uh, make people more attentive to what is going on around us and to sort of um, present them with a picture of a world that is alive and in which different beings are um, talking about different beings. And uh, um, Adam very briefly mentioned the prairie dogs. Um, yes, they greet each other in a certain way, but they also have a very um, uh, significant set of alarm calls in which they speak about humans. And that sort of, I think that goes, I mean, elephants have words for humans. Um, so um, who is doing the looking? Well, I think right now animals are doing the looking at us and we're not paying enough attention. So we should pay much more attention and listen to them in a, in a different way. And considering the whole um, uh, novel writing thing, we know that certain uh, whales sing love songs that go on for 20 hours. I mean, these things are <laughs> epic, you know? What are they saying? We don't know, we don't have a clue. So we don't know a lot about these other beings that we share our planet with. I mean, I'd love to be an abolitionist. I'd love to say, I think Peter Singer once said, let's all go and live in Australia, which is easy for him because he lives there anyway, and let leave the rest of the planet to all the other animals. But that's just basically not going to happen. And as humans, we have our hands in everything. You know, we're ruining all their habitats. And we have all of these encounters and conflicts and things. And that's definitely not ideal. And I think we should take a step back from uh, many of these encounters. You know, we should definitely as humans withdraw and leave more space for them, literally. But as it is, and as it is going to be for a long time, we're also going to have to neg negotiate all of the encounters we have uh, with the other animals. And knowledge is always... I mean, knowledge always has this kind of dual uh, thing. On the one hand, it can help you deal better with another. And on the other hand, it increases your power over the other. So uh, we have to be really careful in uh, figuring out how we learn about animals in non-violent circumstances and how learning together goes hand in hand with living together in a new way. So for example, there's a lot of political research in animal sanctuaries at the moment, or at least some political philosophers are taking seriously the idea of studying non-human animal views on uh, new societies together with them under non-violent uh, conditions. And that is one way of setting up, um, a sort of avoiding the trap that you were describing, uh, Darren, but there are other ways. And I guess that we have ignored in animal agency for a very, very long time. And that we are now trying to figure out how to deal with it in a way that is respectful. And basically, but my argument in when animals speak and also in animal languages is that it is not up to us humans to define what language is, what meaningful communication is, or what the perfect political society uh, would look like. 
For that, we definitely need to engage with other animals. And this does not mean imposing new political experiments on them as we have always done, but it does mean taking seriously the encounters that are already there and seeing them in a new light. And it also means um, engaging with them in different ways. And this is, um, so it's, it, I'm not presenting an answer. I'm basically asking, to reformulate a question. And I think that a lot of people are now working on questions of politics and animals. That's really been a change in uh, academic philosophy in the past 10 years, beginning with uh, Zoopolis, the book that Sue Donaldson and Will Kimlicka wrote. And or, uh, not beginning with that, but that was kind of the, the proper start of the, um, of the conversation, I think. And uh, one of the things that a lot of people are, are grappling with at the moment is, um, yeah, what do we do with animal subjectivity, with uh, language and culture? I think just like building on, on, on what you've just said, I suppose I'm interested in this tension that I see between, um, on the one hand, I get the impression that you think that we can get on the same wavelength as some animals, that we can communicate and that we can have really like meaningful relationships, for example, with dogs and uh, animals with whom we have co-evolved, you know, and that we've got, we share this kind of culture. And on the other hand, you've got this idea that um, there's something inscrutable about certain types of animals. So the whale song is something that we can't you know, where do we start? I mean, it's beautiful in a very abstract way. And I guess I'm kind of persuaded by this thought, which is born out of um, feminist theory, that the way that we think about the world connects to our physicality and that we're, we're embodied beings. We're not just kind of Cartesian minds floating in, in space. But if we think that, then it's kind of hard to resist the idea that communication across species boundaries for example, between humans and dogs is going to be very, very difficult, if possible at all. And so I guess it would be really helpful if you could clarify exactly how you think that we can get on the same wavelength as some other animals, because to me, it just seems like they're just going to be um, obscure alien intelligences that we can't have any kind of reciprocal relationship with really so yeah that's yeah that's my, that's my long yeah. question yeah thank you so um the thing is there are many different kinds of kinds of differences and um i suppose that uh and there are many things that we share with others. I think that uh, a lot of people have a sort of instant uh, folk knowledge of uh, other animals uh, that can be um, uh, driven by empathy or by cognition. Um, uh, when you see someone suffer uh, of a different species, um, then you feel it and uh, it's, I mean, of course, there's a lot of understanding between humans and uh, companion animals, um, uh, but there's also a lot of understanding uh, between humans and others. And, uh, and sometimes it can help to draw uh, attention to that. For example, in the case of fish, uh, that um, a lot of people can't uh, really, really understand. But I think that that is not the basic idea. So yes, we are embodied beings uh, and other animals are as well. And, uh, but I think that humans are obsessed with species in a way um, they are, have been obsessed with uh, gender differences for a long time or um, uh, 
other types of differences. And there are significant differences uh, between different groups of beings. Um, these differences are not simply biological, they are cultural and they are historical. I mean, so Merleau-Ponty writes somewhere that uh, difference is not, um, is actually a prerequisite for understanding someone because if you are completely the same, you don't need to understand each other because you're the same anyway. But when you have this kind of difference, there, there's suddenly a space in between that you can uh, that you can perhaps cross or not. And I think we all know the feeling with an intimate human partner that sometimes they're completely close to you and with you. And at another point, you can sort of feel like, who is this person? Uh, because you, you see the difference in someone. And I think that's the same with the dogs. You know, we, we, I, I, I live with two dogs and 10 lab mice and the mice don't like me at all, but that's a different story. But um, with the dogs, there can be this intuitive um, uh, understanding that is not bound to a species in any sense. And I feel much more connected to them and they to me than to others. And I could elaborate on that, but I, I won't be for the sake of time. And um, I think that the danger in binary thinking is that we uh, make other groups so different that we don't engage with them anymore. So Derrida, for example, warns against using the word animals for all other animals, because he says that this word separates all humans from all other animals. And this flattens out the differences in the group of animals, but it also flattens out the similarities that there are between uh, humans and certain animals. And he says there's not one ravine, as, as Heidegger wrote, there's not one gap between all humans and all animals. There are many, many, many kinds of gaps. And sometimes they are between individuals and sometimes they are between um, uh, groups of humans. And sometimes they are between groups and of humans and other animals. So we need to um, be very specific about the types of non-human animals we are uh, discussing and about the, the, the sort of differences uh, between humans. And the words that we have to describe these relations can sometimes uh, reinforce the problem. And I think that the idea of embodied thinking as developed in, in feminism can give us, uh, but also by Merleau-Ponty, who I just mentioned, can, can give us a, a, a different perspective on the, uh, on the situation. And in some instances, uh, that might help. But uh, for other things, we need other conceptual um, uh, tools. Right, that's really helpful. Um, Darren, I, so I'm uh, A, conscious of the time, but B, uh, Darren, I don't know if you had any follow-up thoughts on that. You're okay, yeah. Um, so I suppose just quickly before we get to, we open up for the Q&A, just kind of building on this, and I, and I guess Darren's already touched on this a little bit um, in relation to how conversations around veganism intersect with conversations around colonialism. And I and I think this is this is something that, which is in animal languages and um there are a few occasions where you talk about the ease with which cross-species communication compares to um, sometimes intercultural communication. I guess there is a, there's a worry there that there might be political re repercussions to elevating the communicative potential with non-human animals over our ability to communicate with other humans with different cultural backgrounds or to positioning animals, for example, as, and I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce his surname, but Jason... Kribal positions animals as members of the working class, 
and yeah, I just it would be interesting to 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 hear what you have what thoughts you have about that actually. Yeah, the thing is that a lot of philosophers find it hard to uh, think about metaphors because what exactly is a metaphor? Is is a metaphor something or is it not something? And if it's not something, then what is it? So um, I think that um, when we compare different groups, we have to be very specific in what it is that we are comparing. Because when I write about animals as a social or a political group, and I'm not the only one uh, doing that, I am not, again, looking for a sort of essentialist comparison, saying A is B. When I compare uh, the uh, political position of non-human animals to that of women a uh, hundred years ago, which is not something that I would do, but um, I, I wouldn't say animals are like women. But um, the idea of certain comparisons would be to bring to light certain aspects of perhaps the animal condition, but I think more importantly, the relation, structural relationship between groups of humans and uh, groups of other animals. And if you flatten that, you know, it's like the Holocaust uh, uh, comparison. Sometimes uh, vegans or animal rights theorists will compare the position of um, certain groups of non-human animals, for example, in uh, industrial farming to the Holocaust or kind of use that as, as, as a meta metaphor. And I understand why they do that, because they want, they think of the, the worst thing they can think of and then say it's like this for the animals. And that sort of comes from a position, I think, of powerlessness of the, the person using it saying, please see how bad this is, you know, please see it. But the thing is, when you use that comparison, then you also completely turn other people away because they think, no, those were humans and, you know, it's a different situation. So it's, 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 some, it's a very intricate thing. It's something that we need to be careful with. But also when we are discussing non-human animals as workers, which they are, you know, they work. And there's a very nice new field in academia, which is called animal labor, in which uh, people are uh, dealing with these questions in a very careful and uh, uh, concise way. Uh, so, so yeah, I think that it can be helpful. And this relates back to the whole question of uh, imposing certain concepts onto other animals. No, I, I would not want to impose them on them, but I do want to figure out. Uh, so we have this human interpretation of a concept. We have a lot of new information about other animals. How do these things interact? Um, uh, should we um, uh, twist the human concept that we have together with the other animals? Or um, is it something that doesn't interest them? Um, how do these things work? And one sm small um, note is that you said something about elevating animal communication. And I think that that's perhaps something that you can uh, get out of the book. But I think my point is not that we should, my point is that the animals have been speaking all along, you know, so it's, it's much more uh, a matter of recognizing that they are dealing with the world as social beings in a sort of magnificent and, and creative and funny way that is sometimes different from us and sometimes uh, understandable. Uh, but it's not about elevating them in any way. It's more about seeing our own blind spots and changing our own attitude as humans. Uh, there was this experimental composer. God, what's her name? I just forgot her name. It will come, come. Oh, yeah, Pauline Oliveros. Um, uh, and she writes about deep listening as a uh, kind of attitude towards 
the world. So um, as humans, we are very often, we often think that we have to understand the world with words by speaking about it when we are doing that now so sometimes it can be helpful uh, but she's basically saying that uh, we need to listen much more and not simply in a way not simply as you would listen to a conversation but also um, because it's a different type of attitude and I think that we are now at a point in our existence at, as humans uh, in which we find out that uh, we need to begin to listen in a different way to animals and to the natural world, not just for their survival, um, but also for our own survival as humans. Not that I'm too concerned with our own survival as humans. I basically think that we need to treat the other animals much better. But still, you know, it's uh, we are not this wonderful exception that we think we are. Uh, we are poor, embodied, uh, vulnerable, uh, but also sometimes wonderful and loving uh, beings. And we can do better and we should do better, but this doing better can't be based on our own perspective alone because we are not alone. We are with all the others. Yeah, I, I, I think this this thing about the yeah, understanding the, the animals we live with possibly better than people from a different culture. I think that was the bit that if I'm honest, sort of concerned concerns yeah. me the most when, when I read the book and I, I guess I'm thinking of it putting it in the context where, I, where do I say that I don't think I'm saying that I think that's there's a I, I mean there's a, without without wishing to do the oh I, you know I'll quote but it's there's uh if, if you know an animal well for example an animal companion with whom you share a household you can understand him or her better than you can understand a human from a completely different culture. Yeah, so the, the background to that, um, I, I lived with a cat, his name was Putti, and he was from Lebanon and he, he was very wonderful. And I very vividly remember um, uh, writing one morning and he was with me and then I, I um, took my bicycle and I went to uh, the university. I was following a master in philosophy at that uh, point and I was sitting there um, with uh, a lot of fellow students. It was a course about uh, democracy and uh, power or something. Uh, and I remember just being there and I was like, oh, they're all so strange, um, these humans. And um, uh, with uh, Putti, it was so, uh, um, I don't know. So I, I, I suddenly felt um, this, this kind of, um, where people would always say, oh, you would un probably understand these humans better because you speak the same language um but then um i think that that's kind of more what i mean than uh um uh understanding humans from a different culture but i do think that um for example uh, wittgenstein writes about um a lion that we cannot uh understand and a lot of people say oh wittgenstein thought that we couldn't communicate with other animals because uh, he writes that if a lion could speak, we would not be able to understand that lion. But if you uh, read what comes immediately after that, um, uh, then this picture changes somewhat. So after that, he writes, it would be like if you go to a completely different uh, community and you would have a, a dictionary with you, uh, uh, you still would not, with all the knowledge in the dictionary, be able to understand precisely what is going on with these other humans, because for uh, that you would need to live with them for a little while. You would need to get to know them um, 
in a sort of embodied way. Uh, smiles can mean different things in different cultures. They can be inviting, they can be, but they can also be distant, you know? So in order to grasp all of these little details, you would have to um, uh, get more uh, um, understanding than you get from the dictionary. So if we move back to the lion, then uh, Wittgenstein would say, okay, we're not understanding the lion because they are from a different culture. And elsewhere in philosophical investigations, he, under, he describes how simple language games between humans and um, animals that you do live with are uh, possible. So um, I guess that maybe that didn't come out very good in the animal language book uh, because it sort of sets up a gulf between uh, this uh, one community and then it sort of adds the animals in but it's it sets up uh, a we they uh, um, problem in another space but basically what i'm trying to say is again what i what i said before uh, to adam is that we need to think carefully about different types of differences between uh, different types of groups and um, uh, species is not this uh, huge fence that we can never get over, similar to how this um, uh, um, works with humans from, uh, from different cultures or uh, the thing with language, which is also some people think that um, I think about language in sort of harmonious way or that I feel like, oh, we should all understand each other and then things go well. No, they don't actually. That's what we see uh, in our democracies, you know. Um, and language has these two things always. So on the one hand, it can um, function as a bridge to the others. You know, I'm speaking to you in English, which is not my first language, but we, we sort of get each other, I suppose. But then again, words are always also the thing that separates us from these others. So they are never complete and they are never... We never, I mean, I work as a novelist and I, as a philosopher, you use ugly words to build ugly, ugly big things out of ugly words. But as a novelist, you try to do something else. You try to find the, the, the precise right word for, or the precise right metaphor for a sort of feeling or understanding. So I'm all the time working with something that I cannot capture and something that I cannot grasp because the, the more you become aware of the possibilities of language, the, the worse it gets. Thanks for listening to Do You Even Vegan, a podcast where we talk about veganism personally, politically, and when we're in a good mood, playfully. You can reach out to us on Twitter at DYEV1621. Darren's handle is at Rat Classroom. Any likes, thumbs up, comments, or general words of affirmation are always gratefully received. See you next time on Do You Even Vegan? <laughs> <laughs>